Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think increasingly uh, it'll be divorced from this really quite extraordinary thing, the newspaper, which contained everything from big, breaking, important stories through to the crossword puzzle, through to the, um, my own particular favorite, the, um, the Scottish second division football results, uh, because my, my home team is in the second division, alas. Uh, and so I always look for that. And the world is full of people who look for something like that, but can easily get it now uh, in a website which deals with Scottish football uh, or Irish hurling or whatever it might be. We're, I think, being forced into picking and choosing from a vast range of, of choices rather than getting every morning or every evening a um, a product which may be 8 or 16 or 32 or 64 pages, which is put together by people who are trying to guess what will be popular, what will attract attention, uh, what will be seen as important or funny or interesting enough to spend a few, uh, a few minutes reading. Um, that, I think, will change. Uh, so we'll be different kind of readers than we have been used to be for the last couple of centuries. The general principle for journalism is it should tell the truth. Without reliability, one cannot be a journalist. The incisive words of Scottish journalist, writer and teacher John Lloyd from his new book, The Power and the Story, The Global Battle for News and Information, published by Atlantic Books. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. How vital is press freedom to human flourishing? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack that question with John Lloyd of the Financial Times and ask who and what is controlling the news. In The Power and the Story, John Lloyd writes, Journalism in the Middle East is controlled strongly by a mix of state party power and Islamic doctrine. In nearly all, the passivity amounting to servitude of journalists has been the norm. John goes on to argue the public pleasure and fantasy was always amply accommodated in the development of journalism. Liking lies has always been the dirty secret of journalism. So what's going wrong in global media and is journalism an imperfect trade? Hello, uh, my name is John Lloyd. Uh, most of my working life I've been a journalist. Much of that time has been with the Financial Times, both in the UK and abroad, mainly abroad in Central Europe and then in the former Soviet Union. Uh, in the course of that, I've covered everything from strikes through to the end of the Soviet Union. Uh, I've written several books, um, the latest of which is called The Power and the Story, which is an attempt to come to terms with what journalism is in the world, not in every country, but in many, just so that we know how journalism is developing uh, both in the authoritarian countries, where journalism is under under the control, more or less heavy, of the state, and in the democratic countries, mainly in the West, where we say journalism 
is more or less free. Really well done on the book, uh, John. It's a fascinating read. I have to say, very well researched, expansive, and you ask some very deep questions of yourself and in the world. So um, hats off to you on that one. I might throw you a big wide open question, and in one way it's a bit of an obvious one. What is journalism all about? And when it comes down to it, is it all about the truth? No, it's not all about the truth. Uh, You could argue that, that the truth is, if you look at all of journalism in the world, the truth is, if not a minor part, certainly the smaller part of the whole. Journalism, I think, from the beginning was partly about what happens in the world. Some of the best journalism, in the sense of the most accurate journalism when it began, say, about four centuries ago, uh, mainly in Europe, was uh, what you could call, I suppose, business journalism. It was to tell merchants and traders and people who made things what the state of the market was. One of the earliest places where it developed was in in Venice, which was then one of the great trading centers of the world. And it developed there because people had to know uh, or wanted to know what the cargoes were doing, which cargoes were safe, which had come to port, and what they were carrying and how much it was worth. From that then developed another kind of journalism, which you could say was foreign affairs journalism, which tended to concentrate, as we still do, on wars uh, and the description of wars. And that was important because people wanted to know where their country was, where in the countries which themselves were might be in war, the war was in order to either join it or avoid it. And then bit by bit, too, it became literary. People wrote essays. Uh, it became uh, polemical. Um, people used the news sheets uh, and the pamphlets in order to make polemical points very often very hostile to the other side. Uh, And then, again, bit by bit, it developed more into the kind of journalism we know. That is, it ranged across foreign affairs, domestic affairs, business affairs, and then even began to deal with sport down round about the 19th century. So it was a slow process, but it always followed some kind of public demand. Somebody needed journalism at some point. You subtitled the book The Global Battle for News and Information and it got me thinking how can how would you describe possibly what we're living through now because a lot of people would say we're in a post-truth society where we don't really know what the truth is or how to go about looking for it. I've been a bit skeptical about the post-truth idea because uh, when you look back on the range of journalism over the last four centuries or so Post-truth, or fake news, as it's more popularly called, has always been an element, and sometimes a very large element. Partly that was because, uh, in the beginnings of journalism, with relatively crude ways of communicating, taking a long time to get the news from one place to the other, nobody really knew what was happening in real time. And very often the news was wrong. Um, People saw things wrongly, heard things wrongly, understood things wrongly. And that can still be the case. But uh, in the early days, in the 17th and 18th centuries, quite often uh, both things were, the information was wrong because it was far away from the source of the information. The sources of the information themselves, assuming they were human, got things wrong. But also the... um, it was quite quickly apparent that 
the kind of news that people liked, the things that they bought, that they, when they bought news sheets and later on newspapers and pamphlets and so on, they liked the news, which was very often made up. And that's still the case. In other words, journalism always had a large part of it. And sometimes in the case of some of the tabloids and others, the largest part of it, which was at least partly made up because the people writing it uh, knew what the market wanted and tailored the facts to the market. In other words, they put in quite a lot of fake news. Uh, so we've always had fake news. The difference now, I think, and might, we might come on to this later, that the, the Internet and social media uh, multiply by many hundreds, even thousands of times, the, the amount of information that we can access and Given a computer or a laptop, we can access it very quickly. And thus, we are exposed or we expose ourselves every day to vast amounts of information, some of which is deliberately wrong and some of which is, is false, either deliberately or not deliberately. It's used by people in order to make a certain kind of impression which they wish to make, but which is wrong. Um, and when people like President Trump and others say it's fake news, very often what they're saying, indeed mostly what they're saying, is that the news may or may not be, be wrong, but in any case, it's what they don't like. They're rejecting it. They're saying it's fake because they don't like it, usually because it's something uh, pejorative about them. So fake news is much more numerous, much grander, much larger than it used to be, but then so is real news. There's lots of truthful news. There's lots and lots of places on the Internet where you can find material that is true, which has been worked through conscientiously, which people take the time to do, which has been fact-checked, and fact-checking is much more um, predominant now than it used to be. The trick is knowing which is which. And it's interesting, John, one of the people you quote in um, in the book um, was the um, journalist, activist and um, commentator Walter Lippmann. He was arguing about the difference between the truth and the news um, in the early 20th century. And, you know, this was something that he really um, went hard on, didn't he? Yes. I mean, Lippmann was, um, was a very influential figure. In fact, he was probably the most influential intellectual uh, in the United States arguably in the world for a while, uh, because he was very high profile. He, had a, he commanded space in newspapers and then in radio, which was becoming an important means of communication while he uh, became famous in the 20s and 30s of the, um, uh, of, the, of the past century. And he became, I think, well known because he, he delivered a challenge to the public. And the challenge was, do you understand what's happening in the world? And the other one, possibly greater, was can you, the journalists, can journalism tell people what is happening in the world so that they understand it? Uh, and bit by bit, he became more and more pessimistic that journalists uh, and journalism could not deliver facts as they should be delivered. What he wanted uh, to uh, put into play was um, a, an information which allowed citizens to be fully citizens because they could understand the processes uh, and the, the, the elements and the movements within society. Uh, 
through reading or, or listening. And he thought that journalism simply didn't do that. That journalism, even if it tried to tell the truth, knew too little, uh, didn't know enough facts, didn't gather enough facts to make the information that it passed on really useful. And so he, he tended to be pessimistic about journalism and argued for centers of information, which might, have, might be those sponsored by the government or might be private, whose job it was to produce information, but not in the way the journalists do in order to attract a market, but with a particular public service view in mind. Um, he was opposed by that um, by another uh, leading intellectual called Dewey, who took a much more optimistic view and thought that um, competition among journalists, competition among newspapers and radio stations could produce um, both good journalism, not all of it would be good, and also could produce journalism which uh, carried different opinions and therefore would be a democratic marketplace for opinions and views which people could visit. Uh, and that more optimistic view has tended to be the one that's underpinned the optimistic side of journalism ever since. But could it not be argued, John, that, you know, all trades are professions, you know, none of them are perfect. You know, you take the armed forces, you take lawyers, you take doctors, you know, there's problems and snags to all industries, you know, and how industries develop and respond to change can really um, have an impact on, on, on practice. That's true. Uh, if you take really important uh, professions like, say, medicine and the law, where Knowing what is true, getting things right, getting things accurate, is extremely important, very often a matter of life and death. Um, then you can see that in these professions and in others, um, you mentioned the military, um, getting it right is absolutely vital, more vital, arguably, than in journalism. The difference, I think, between these professions and what what I would say, is the trade of journalism, is that um, the professions all have fairly long training periods. It takes a while, especially, to become a fully trained doctor. It takes a while to become a, a fully trained lawyer, especially if you're uh, a barrister or a judge. Um, it takes a while to become an experienced soldier or officer. For journalism, and this is part, I think, of the argument for today um, that people have today. For journalism, the freedom of people to express themselves uh, is much more important. We don't argue that people should be free to perform operations, should be free to sit in judgment on people in a court, and so on. We do argue that uh, people should be free to express themselves as they wish within certain bounds, of course, within legal limits, which vary a lot between country and country, including in the democratic world. Um, uh, and especially now, with the Internet and with social media, we've had, as I said earlier, um, an increase by thousands of times of the ability of people to express themselves. So, again, in an optimistic frame of mind, one can say publishing has never been so democratic, has never been so open to all. 
anyone with a laptop, indeed anybody with a mobile phone, can be a publisher. And some, minority, but still nevertheless some, even people who are unknown, leaving aside celebrities and well-known politicians and so on, can become uh, well-known simply through broadcasting, uh, putting on the net, putting on the social media, their views. If they appeal to enough people, if the word gets around, this person is really good to, to, to listen to or to read, then he or she can become quite famous. So it's, it's a, a marketplace which is now huge, hugely crowded, but much freer than any, anyone before. What we're beginning to learn now is the, the downside of that, the downside of Google and Twitter and Facebook and so on. But there's no question that it has been an enormous increase in the freedom. But the freedom comes from somebody who can get up in the morning uh, in his or her pajamas and sit down and start tweeting, as uh, apparently the President of the United States does, uh, or the person around the corner does. Um, that means that, in a formal sense at least, it's much more democratic. You highlight the pressure the market exerts on the creation of truthful accounts. Let's look at some of the big, um, uh, let's look at some of the um, topical locations around the world where truthful accounts have been called into question. Um, uh, let's say Russia, for example. In Russia, um, what you have is a, uh, you have an authoritarian state. It isn't like the Soviet Union, where it's ruled by a single party. There is more freedom except in the last few years of the Soviet Union when Mikhail Gorbachev was, uh, was General Secretary of the Communist Party and President, where there was relative freedom. But for much of the Soviet Union, especially in the Stalinist times, there was an absolute iron fist, uh, which meant that if you published something, even if you said something and were overheard, which wasn't pleasing to the authorities, you were in deep trouble and uh, your life was in some danger. Now, it isn't like that but it's an authoritarian state insofar as the main, um, the main means of communication and of news, uh, which is still television, uh, as in most countries, uh, more people watch TV still, although it's declining in favor of the internet and social media, um, and most people get their news still from television. What the authorities in, the, in Russia especially under the presidency of Vladimir Putin for the last almost 20 years now, 17 years, uh, is what happened is that the main TV channels have been brought under state control or are owned by companies which themselves uh, are beholden to the state and therefore little appears on TV, which is critical of the government, um, and which doesn't echo in important senses the government line. However, there is quite a substantial part of the communication and the media in, uh, in Russia, including that on the Internet, which is relatively free. It isn't like in China, where the Internet is very much, uh, especially under Xi Jinping, the relatively new general secretary and president. It isn't like that in that it's very much controlled and patrolled by the state, you can still get quite a lot of stuff on the internet, which is critical, sometimes very critical. There are some magazines, a few newspapers, both 
national newspapers mainly produced in Moscow, and regional newspapers and magazines, which are also critical, go against the line. It, there's, there's control, which means that they never get too important. As um, one of the liberals put it to me some time ago, um, what they make sure is that, that intellectuals can get stuff that they like. Maybe one or two million people who are intellectual or liberal or so on in the course in, in a country of about 140 million will have magazines and newspapers that they read um, which reflect some of their criticisms. But the mass of people so far get a diet which is pretty much controlled by the central authorities and which answer ultimately to Vladimir Putin, the president in the Kremlin. You argue, John, that Putin and his technologists have sought to achieve a Russian dream, the absolute unity of leader and people. And you cite uh, different types of websites and, and, and news media which have been silenced. One of them is Lentaru. I'm just wondering, do you think Putin has actually achieved that dream? He's, you know, he's clearly a strong man and he clearly has tremendous power and wealth in, in mm -hmm. Russia. But has he achieved totally, um, that idea of absolute, um, absolute power? No, he hasn't achieved that. I mean, you could argue that he hasn't really, that's not been his ambition, that he's contented himself with, I don't know, say 80, 85% of control, insofar as you can measure it. Um, I mean, he did come to, to power after the rather chaotic period of Boris Yeltsin in the 90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union, came to power in 2000, and um, one who professed uh, an attachment to democratic practice, to free speech, to free news media, free journalism, and so on. And for a while, at least, uh, that was more or less allowed. What began to happen bit by bit was that he, first of all, he dispossessed the very wealthy men, and they all were men, who owned the, mean, the main means of communication, mainly the TV stations. They were the so-called oligarchs who had done very well out of the collapse of the Soviet Union, and many of them had used that wealth to buy up TV stations, start newspapers, magazines, and so on. He dispossessed them, not of their property, but of their political power. Some of them had huge power over Yeltsin and the Yeltsin family, uh, and since Yeltsin was ailing for some of the time that he was president, that power increased. Putin said, there's a deal in front of you, lads. Um, uh, you can keep your property if you don't oppose me and you get out of politics. Those who didn't follow that rule, uh, and there were um, two or three, including, above all, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who was the richest of the oligarchs, who criticized Putin even after that and ended up with 10 years in, in prison camps, and he's now living in the West. Uh, but the rest of them more or less knuckled down. They kept their wealth. Uh, they increased their wealth uh, very often, but they no longer had any kind of leverage over politics. And then bit by bit, he then took the control into his own hands, took it away from private hands, and then spread it among his own people, many of whom had been like, like he had been uh, an officer in the KGB and the Secret Services. Uh, and these people and their the next generation remain so. They're... Um, their instincts are for order um, and for a, a society, for a politics, which uh, 
may follow some of the the rules of democracy. There are elections. There are other parties than than his own. Um, there are challenges to the president every so often. There will be a president election president election next year. But um, one could say that the regime makes it pretty certain that nobody uh, will win apart from, so far, President Putin. What happens after he wishes to go or perhaps dies or, or becomes unable to rule is still a very open question. Talking Books on Newsalk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with journalist, writer and academic John Lloyd, whose new book, The Power and the Story, has just been published by Atlantic Books. I asked John about the state of play in Turkey. As he writes, over the past decade, Erdogan has silenced, marginalised or cursed nearly anyone in the country who might oppose him. I put it to John, are critical voices being heard in Turkey? That does seem to be the case. I mean, Turkey is a case of... Uh, authoritarian countries obviously differ. They differ rather as democratic countries differ, maybe not quite so much, um, because they've got more similarities. In the case of Turkey, you had a country which, although was never what you might call a model of democracy, was always subject uh, to periodic military coups, uh, did have a kind of diverse press rather than a free press. Uh, diverse in the sense that there were newspapers with different points of view who, which supported different um, uh, lines of politics and different individuals. Um, what happened when... President Erdogan took over was, again, bit by bit, year by year, he closed down until in the last few years, and especially um, a couple of years ago, which happened after uh, I'd been there, he's, he suffered uh, an attempted coup, and indeed an attempted uh, coup on his life. He then uh, cracked down very hard on what he saw as a, a network organized by someone who had been an ally of his, a man called Gulen, who now work, who lives in the States. And he justified the crackdown on every kind of institution, on the army, on the judiciary, and perhaps most importantly, on journalism, in order to, as he would put it, to end the challenge to the state and the possibility of a coup. And that has meant that nearly all the means of communication in Turkey, including uh, social media and the internet, are under pretty strict control. In the last year or so, uh, he has made sometimes personally interventions in what TV has put out, phoning um, the heads of stations, even while a program which he disapproved of was on the air and telling them to get it off, which of course was obeyed. Um, and stamped his authority as president uh, on almost every aspect of Turkish political, social, and intellectual life. And that remains the case now. Uh, There is no, as far as one can tell, there is no strong challenge. And there are very few places where um, journalists and intellectuals and opposition politicians can challenge him. There are a few um, still remaining, but they do so at the risk of their freedom 
and quite often, increasingly, they do it from abroad. When you think about the um, the anxiety, fear um, that the, all of that creates, you know what I mean? Because I would imagine a lot of people that you met there in Turkey were self-censoring. And, you know, you, you know, when you're living through that, all forms of, you know, social relationships, whether it's between working colleagues, um, extended family members, everyone becomes paranoid. Everybody gets watched or feels they're watched, don't they? They do. And they, it... It spreads through society, and as you say, journalists who want to remain journalists, who want to keep their job, then become self-censoring. First, a little bit, uh, and then increasingly so, until they no longer really reflect their own opinion or their own view of what's happening in the country, and certainly not their own criticisms of what's happening in government, but bit by bit become, possibly with a few liberal flashes, essentially spokespeople for the um, administration. Well, I I think Sudad, and and this was more the case, I think, in uh, more obviously the case in other countries in the Middle East, was is that uh, in in countries where Islam was the is the main religion, the the position of the religion, which is much stronger and much more adhered to than we in Christian or formerly Christian countries uh, are now are accustomed to, the position of the, of the religion is much stronger and uh, has not lent itself particularly to freedom of speech. It can coexist with it um, in countries like, say, Lebanon or Tunisia to an extent and Morocco, but it's not often very keen on it. The authority tends to go and it remains in the, uh, in the mosques uh, and in the imams who see themselves much more than priests and ministers did in, the, uh, uh, in, in Christian religion, uh, more, I think, than rabbis did in the, in, in the Jewish religion, who see themselves really as people who lay down not just the religious law but also the way in which to live. And journalism has been seen and still is seen uh, in many of these countries, Saudi Arabia perhaps most dramatically, but also now Egypt, as um, a secondary element, as one which is controlled partly, of course, by the civil power, as say it is now in Egypt by the, um, the military government headed by uh, El Sisi, President El Sisi, um, in alliance with, very often, the religious power. The two combine in a way which no longer happens in most Christian, formerly Christian countries. Uh, And that tends, I think, to narrow the field for criticism and also for for journalism, which uh, has the aspiration, the ambition, to describe fully and especially to do investigative journalism into the various things that are wrong with society. Who's in control in Mexico? Because you um, you present some startling research on the amount of journalists that have been murdered in the last year and also the state of play between um, the government and um, different um, criminal groups. It seems chaotic. It is. And, and Mexico is a case which, uh, in, in which, for most years, um, is the most dangerous country in the world for journalists. Uh, but it 
has not meant, and even now doesn't mean, that the journalists don't try to tell the truth. And there you find, I think, the most extraordinary um, courage that journalists, we know perfectly well, that if they try to expose the gangs, uh, the, the very large and very powerful gangs, which mainly draw their income from drug production and drug running, often into into United States, um, if they take them on, uh, and taking them on simply means reporting them very often, not even investigating, but simply reporting them, uh, they can be killed, often tortured, uh, uh, and certainly um, deprived of a living. That, that's a mild reaction. Mostly they're, um, they're tortured and or killed. So it's a tribute, I think, to courage, of course, uh, the courage not of all journalists, in fact, probably a minority. But that minority is quite numerous, and because it's quite numerous, many of them have been killed and continue to be killed. For, for example, simply reporting the fact that a body was found in a, in a square in the morning, which had been killed uh, probably by a gang, uh, to add that, perhaps you could get away with saying a body was found, but to, to say that probably it had been a gang war or somebody who had been crossed the, um, the wrong people in a, in a powerful gang um, uh, would, has earned and would still, I think, in many cases, in many places, earn the death penalty. In one case, in a newspaper quite near the Mexico-U.S. border, the killing of journalists, and the suppression of journalism was so strong that the main daily newspaper put an advert on its front page addressed to the honorable leaders of the, the, the most important, the dominant gang in the area, asking them politely, uh, what will you allow us to publish? Tell us, because uh, we want to know the lines which we can't cross because we don't want our people to be killed. In other words, they were asking permission, not from the government, but from the gangs, um, as to what they could or could not publish. The gang leaders came back to them, told them what was, and in, in fact began to issue press releases as to what they thought was right and wrong, not, of course, telling them about their business, but you know, thoughts from the leaders of the gang would appear in the newspapers quite regularly. In other words, the paper was taken over by the criminal element, and as many of the Mexican journalists uh, will tell you, very often the gangs were in cahoots with some level or other of government, either the local government or the regional government, or at times uh, members of the, of the national government, ministers, high-ranking um, generals, and others. So to be a journalist in Mexico, you've got to be pretty careful. Can I ask you a philosophical question, though, John? Like, you've practised journalism for over 40 years. You also lecture on it, and you've been uh, deeply enmeshed within um, the field of British journalism and investigations. Do you think it's all worth it? Like, clearly, you believe in journalism. It's very obvious from how you've written the book. But I'm just wondering, you know, when you think of all the uh, brothers, sisters, husbands and wives that have been bereft, 
do you think it's really worth it? Like we saw the case there a couple of months ago of um, the um, investigative journalist from Malta and, you know, her son now wanting justice. Do you think it's all worth it? Well, it's a very good question. And I'm sure for the people, the, uh, the family and the loved ones of the, of the men and women, and actually many of them, including in Ireland, have been women who have just pursued to, um, stubbornly their, uh, their career or their, their job, the job they've taken on themselves of finding out what's happened. Um, I'm sure the families of the people who've been killed would ask that question rather bitterly. Uh, they've lost someone they've loved who's been central to their lives, and um, as you say, for what? You could, of course, then take the, the more distant, idealistic view. I'm not mocking it. Um, and that is, yes, it is worth it, because um, uh, for evil to continue to flourish, as the saying goes, uh, it only takes a few good men and women to be silent. Um, so therefore, it is our public duty, not just our journalistic duty, to speak up. It's more of a journalist's duty because he or she enters the trade uh, and gets the privileges such as they are that the trade offers on the explicit understanding that they will try to tell the truth. As we said earlier, that isn't always the case for various reasons, but that's what we say. We say we hold power to account. We challenge government corporate power, all kinds of power, including criminal power, uh, because we, uh, we're in the trade. We're part of the, of the democratic furniture of any democratic state. Without a free press, you don't have a, a full democracy. And that tends to be true if you go to countries which, are, which don't have a free press, they are they tend to be authoritarian. It isn't just they don't have a free press and otherwise they're fine. It does tend to mean that they suppress all kinds of things, uh, uh, as well as journalism and the, and the news media. One of the countries I was very interested in that you profiled, because I worked there as a journalist with South Africa, and you write, sensitivity shouldn't become collusion, but journalism in South Africa, for black and white journalists, it's more of a minefield than in other democracies, because democracy is new and the memories of oppression fresh. I'm just wondering, do you think that will change in South Africa? Um, I think that... that what has been and still remains a relatively free journalism, at least in the newspapers, uh, is under not so much a threat, but it, it's, it's finding it more and more difficult to operate. And you will know, since you've worked there better than I, because I've never worked there, um, that the relationship, if you like, the post-Mandela relationship, Mandela was an extraordinary figure in that he enforced by sheer example and strength of will and purpose, he made the coming away from apartheid and the opening of the country to the majority and giving the majority the vote and, and dignity, which they had not before. In, in doing that, he, of course, um, used the party, the African National Congress, the ANC, as the vehicle, and it remains by far the most 